Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. As we begin Holy Week, uh, our attention focused, of course, to the great events coming up uh, in the Triduum, the uh, in- institution of the priesthood, uh, the crucifixion and uh, atonement that Jesus uh, achieved, uh, the burial on Holy Saturday, then, of course, the great resurrection on Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday, and we're off and running in Easter season. Uh I spent time uh, in early February with Dr. Tom McGovern, who has authored the book, What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. And uh, we didn't get as much time as we needed to, to really uh, look at not only the physical dimension of Jesus' suffering, which is quite important and worthwhile, but also what that suffering means for us and how we can conform our lives uh, to him. Uh, Dr. McGovern is uh, the author, as I said, of What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. He chairs the Catholic Medical Association Young Members Advisory Committee for students, residents, and young physicians in practice. He loves speaking, loves writing about the intersection of faith and medicine. He's the co-host of the award-winning EWTN program, Dr. Doctor, which is also the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And Dr. McGovern, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. It's great to be here. Well, let's uh, let's go where you, to where you begin the book, and that is with the question: Is what is suffering? Well, I take John Paul II's answer, and suffering is simply man's experience of any kind of evil. And then we have to ask, what is evil? And uh, evil is when something or someone lacks a good which they otherwise ought to have. So, in other words, evil doesn't have existence. E- evil is a, is a lack. It's a negative. It can't exist on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, people would say, well, it, for being a lack, it hurts a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> You're Missing something. Yeah, it's an emptiness. <laughs> right. Yeah. An empty stomach hurts a lot. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's very good. Uh, suffering's universal. Um, do animals suffer, by the way, as we understand suffering? Um Animals. We know well, they experience there are two pain. types of suffering. Yeah, yeah, John Paul points out there are two types of suffering in the body and in the mind. Mm-hmm. So, do they suffer in body? Yes, they experience pain. But do they suffer in the mind? No, they don't have a self-reflective awareness, so they do not suffer in that that fashion. When Peter objects to Jesus uh, looking forward to his own suffering and death, as they you know he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and Peter replies, "God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you." Uh, is he? I mean, do you know? Is he speaking specifically uh, that this uh, is, shouldn't happen to Jesus because Jesus has a whole lot more to do with his life, or is he saying somebody like you should not be experiencing suffering or death as uh, a normal person would? Do you know what he has in mind there? Well, I think he sees, and this is only a guess. I can't know for sure. Sure, but I think he sees Jesus is ushering in you know, a new era in in the Church, in, in humanity. And how could this great new thing, the bringing out of the Messianic age, how could it happen if you die? It just didn't compute for Peter. Right. So I think at a very base level, I mean, look, he's a rough fisherman. He's thinking, he dies, all these plans go away. Yeah. Pretty simple. So that's how I would see it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the, the plans for the Messianic kingdom don't include suffering. So what's this about, <laughs> you know? How, how could they? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, something that the Catholic faith 
makes very clear, and which I did not appreciate uh, actually until I was back in full communion with the Catholic Church, and, and that is that uh, there is something called redemptive suffering. Of course, I always yeah. knew Jesus suffered redemptively, but I did not uh, have any grasp of how I, as a disciple of Jesus, should could also uh, in some way participate uh, redemptively that, in suffering. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, that's, well, John Paul II wrote, you know, in honor of the 1950th anniversary of our redemption, or in 1983, after AD 33, Salva Fici Dolores, which is, you know, on the Christian meaning of human suffering. And the, the title there gives away what it's all about. Suffering saves. Suffering is salvific. Or the meaning of suffering, not the purpose, but the meaning of suffering is redemption. And he says, because Christ's you know, suffering redeemed us, there are certain corollaries. And the corollaries are because, you know, Christ lives in us, uh, therefore Christ redeemed human beings. Christ also redeemed human suffering because he suffered as a man, which means our suffering now has meaning, the same meaning as his. So therefore we can offer our suffering for the redemption of others. I mean, that sounds crazy. It sounds almost heretical, except that the Church teaches it. So we have a superpower which we receive at baptism, because at baptism we are baptized as what? Priest, prophet, and king. So as a priest, the essence of priesthood is to offer sacrifice on behalf of the redemption of somebody else, for the salvation of somebody else. So in our priesthood, we can offer our suffering for the redemption of somebody else. That affects eternity, not just something in our immediate uh, surroundings. Uh, that's incredible. When we encounter Jesus uh, in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, we have yes. a, a story there, uh, which one of the accounts um, uh, that says that he had his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the yeah. ground. Uh, what medically? Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it does. And you know, it it made some sense until 2004, but it started making a lot more sense after that, because for 40 years there was no new case reports of this event called hematidrosis or bloody sweat. But starting in 2004, there have now been dozens of reports from around the world of people literally having blood ooze from their skin. Half the time, they have no warning. It just starts coming up. The other half of the time, there's usually some great um, strain uh, or stress going on, abdominal pain, headache, uh, life-changing stress. In fact, a friend of mine sent me a case that wasn't even in the medical journals. It was just a case report out of St. Louis out of a a 13- or 14-year-old boy uh, in 2018. And the important thing I noticed in there, his whole family was moving to the West Coast in six days. So it's always associated with an increase in adrenaline, where the blood somehow, we don't know how, but uh, blood vessels in the skin can dilate and then blood cells can get out. That's a normal part of inflammation. But there's no inflammation here. But the red blood cells get out and they just wend their way through the collagen fibers of the middle layer of skin out through the surface. They don't travel through the sweat glands. That's the myth part of it. But they do mix with sweat on the surface. Okay, so you don't really literally sweat blood. You, you, You ooze blood and it mixes with the sweat. 
On the surface, exactly. And every time a patient is giving a medicine called a beta blocker, which blocks the effects of adrenaline, then this bloody sweat stops. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Um, So is it always associated with stress then, with some or trauma? No. Some Some of the patients who have been reported with this, the first thing they notice they feel something dripping and they look into its blood. Oh. So half the time there is extreme, you know, they really feel revved up, but the other half of the time, surprisingly, um, there isn't. And uh, it's been witnessed, it's been biopsied, it's been filmed, it's been photographed. And what is really odd to me as a dermatologist is that there is never any bruising. And you would think yeah. that not every single red blood cell is going to get out of the skin. Some of it's going to stay there as yeah. bruised. But yeah, it's not. right. Isn't that something? Wow, that is that is wild. Uh, it is. Should should I mean? Is it legitimate to think that the phenomenon in Jesus uh, was a result of the agony in the garden? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Because you've got with Jesus in the garden, you've got three high adrenaline states going on. Okay, one hematidrosis, but it's probably as reduced. Two, fear. You know. When you are fearing something or when you're in anxiety, you know, a fear that's not physically present yet that you foresee, um, you're, in your brain, your amygdala sends out, you know, hey, there's a threat here. Notice it. And part of that is adrenaline. And the adrenaline is given to us as kind of a human superpower to respond to a threat. Mm. And how do we know he was threatened? You know, Father, if it's possible, please may this cup pass from me. Yeah, yeah. Um what are we to make of that? Jesus sounds like Jesus saying, "Look, is there another way I can do this?" Uh, he certainly knew, <laughs> yeah. you know. what I'm saying he certainly knew ahead of time uh, that he was to die for the sins of the world. What do we make of this kind of last-minute um, uh, reluctance? What appears to be reluctance? I think in his human nature he had to recoil from the fact that his body was going to be broken and and killed. Um, I mean, he experienced all things that we have save sin. So he experienced that. No, that makes makes sense to me. but, But then he goes and he does what we can all learn from when we are facing a threat or a fear, and that is we can reframe it. Instead of, how is this threat an opportunity? And he did that beautifully. What was the next thing he said? Father, not my will, but yours be done. So he said the opportunity here was to do his father's will to save mankind. So he turned the threat. He saw the threat as an opportunity. And then to transform it into living that out, using that adrenaline for the third um, high adrenaline state that's going to help him, which is called flow, when we're operating at our best as human beings to do something most lovingly, he turns it, he first has to experience that pain. He has to be mindful, has to be aware of the presence, and he is in the garden. And he is so aware of that pain that it comes out of him as the sweat and blood. But after that happens, he rises again to meet his betrayer, um, Judas. And from then on in the Gospels, it's like he is calm, at peace, and is above the whole situation. He is using all that adrenaline, all that energy, to take on this opportunity to save us, and no more is there any any thought of wavering. Uh, from that experience, uh, he does seem to be kind of braced after it. Uh, he's got a lot to go through uh, in that night. 
give, give us yeah, give us a, a feeling of or a sense of what it was like because he he bounced around from place to place. What happened during the night? He did. So he, so he probably traveled you know another mile, mile and a half first across the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives across first the house of Annas, uh, who had been the high priest, and his son-in-law Caiaphas was then the high priest. So once in the house of Annas, then he goes to the house of Caiaphas. He's questioned. He, and in those places, he is struck by fists, by open hands, and there's even uh, some suggestion in a word that Luke uses that his skin was harshly beaten. And in fact, there are some marks on the Shroud of Turin that looks like you know a switch, a stick, could have been used to hit him, and it's, uh, it could well have happened there, because beneath the house of Caiaphas, which you can visit in Jerusalem today, a place called St. Peter in Galatantu, which means cockcrow, um, the pit where Jesus was supposedly held and beaten is still there. Hold it there, if you would, uh, Tom. We'll come back. Dr. Thomas McGovern, my guest, What Christ Suffered, our topic. We're looking at a doctor's journey through the Passion, uh, but we're also taking our journey and what we can learn from the sufferings of Jesus. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas McGovern, author of What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. And as we kick off this Holy Week, we're keeping our eyes fixed on Calvary and uh, the, the, uh, Jesus' walk to the cross. Uh, the, he's shuffled around, shuttled around uh, the night. There's reason to believe that he was probably uh, beaten by the guards wherever he ran into them, right? I mean, they were probably none yeah. too pleased to be up all night uh, taking care of this guy. Good point. So when he, when does he, what's the what's the first big step come sunrise? Well, he's been up all night, uh, beaten, so he's without food, without drink, without sleep. One of his best friends just uh, denied that he knew him. And so around sunrise, he has to be taken to Pilate uh, to confirm the sentence, because only, of course, the Romans could allow capital punishment. And he's brought there, and, you know, one of the, I think, uh, fallacies that's been you know disproven is that Pilate would not have been um, at the Fortress of Antonia, which uh, attached itself to the temple, but instead he was taken to the quote, palace, that is the Praetorium. The only palace was Herod's palace, which we have, others have confirmed that that is where the procurator stayed, uh, the governor stayed when they were in town. So he would have traveled to the west side of the old walled city of Jerusalem, and you can see this now. And uh, while there, he was questioned by Pilate. And of course, after questioning him, Pilate wants to release him, because if we look in Luke's Gospel, Luke has Pilate saying, I will therefore scourge him and release him. In other words, he was just going to punish him and let him go. And, and that might be why the scourging ended up being severe enough to lead to a rapid death on the cross. Yeah. Uh, did, do Ro- did Romans scourge uh, prisoners differently uh, than the Jews? Did Jews have a, a thrashing they would give people? Yes. Yeah, there are several differences, uh, and, and then even versus the Greeks. So, of course, the Jews had their limit of 40 lashes minus one, 
and they would usually use like leather or or sticks and not necessarily uh, lead balls. But in fact, the Romans had three different forms of scourging or flesh beating, mm. and the worst of the three was the, the scourging, or called verberatio, where we get a word of reverberation, because it was mm. so strong. And they would do it, uh, and the scourge at the end would have little lead balls, but no sharp pieces of bone. Only the Greeks used the sharp pieces of bone. Huh, but this is consistent with the Shroud of Turin. There are no marks, there are no tearing-like marks there. There are just you know, little round areas, uh, in addition to those others I mentioned, that might have been a stick. But, um, yeah, paired lead balls, in fact, such implements have been found in the catacombs. And they are usually chains uh, made of bronze, uh, a single chain, then with smaller chains coming off, and at the end of each of those, a pair of uh, lead balls, uh, about 8 to 10 millimeters, you know, 3 to 7 inch in diameter. How extensive would be the scourging? If we can use the Shroud of Turin uh, as a guide, uh, exceedingly. Because on the Shroud of Turin, the marks that show up as a little paired balls, you know, on the back, the buttocks, the thighs, on the front, and the back, um, there are hundreds of them. And the only ones that would show are where blood came out of the skin. And certainly blood wouldn't come out with every one, because you'd first have to, you know, soften the yeah. skin, tenderize yeah. it, get it swollen before it would tear. Yeah. Um, and I guess like my imagination can do the work here. Uh, he had to be already considerably weakened, I would think, before he took up the cross. He, he would be weakened just by the beating, because when we're in pain, yeah. our heart's working harder. Yeah. We're sweating more. So we're using a fluid, but we could really use that fluid. He could really use that fluid in his blood. But the more it's out of his blood, the more he's tending toward a condition called shock. When there's not enough blood in your blood vessels to get around and go to your organs and give them the oxygen and blood sugar they need to stay alert and active. Huh. So he, he's, you would say he's going into shock this early? Well, he's, it's a setup for shock. Yeah, okay. I mean, plus... You know what it's like if you're up all night, yep. you're just not as alert. Right. And so even if you have all the potential, you know, blood and oxygen and uh, glucose going to your brain, it's still not functioning on all cylinders. And so what's going to really knock him over is going to be the scourging, because he's going to be struck, it looks like, hundreds of times. And what this will do, you know, just to the rib cage, it's going to cause a lot of, you know, areas of swelling on the rib bones and on the cartilage of the ribs itself. And those are incredibly tender. So each time you take a deep breath and those expand, it hurts like crazy. And it's going to, on the inside of the chest wall, between the lungs and the chest wall, there's going to be blood and other fluid that's going to collect there in what's called the pleural space. So it's in the way of the lungs expanding as much as they want to expand. And additionally, you'll probably have some fluid and blood seeping into the lung tissue itself, not into the sacs where, you know, it's going to exchange with air. So the lungs are not going to work as effectively, and the bigger the breath you take, the more it hurts in your chest. That's going to really set him up for shock. How, how was his body positioned to endure uh, this scourging? How did they deal with his hands? That did they have him standing is, up? Yeah. That is a great question. I've spent years trying to find the answer, many hours at a time, searching on the Internet, searching different sources. And while a lot of people will just make a statement, this is how it was done, I have not found anything in ancient writings to back it up. Huh. The closest I've found is that in the book of Acts, 
one of the times when Paul is flogged, it sounds like his hands are tied up above him. That's the closest I can come. So that's the one that I tend to think of. Yeah. But if you look in, in church art across the world, I mean, he is tied to a very short pillar. In fact, what we think is the pillar in this church of Sa- uh, Santa Presed in Rome, it, it's only like two and a half feet tall, three feet tall. Huh. But in Malta, they've got all kinds of different churches, you know, with different heights of pillars, different ways of being attached to it. I tend to think, because on the shroud, the arms don't show any scourge marks, that the wrists were raised up above his head and he was stretched out. I think that's the most likely. I don't have any evidence to say, yeah, that's definitely the way it happened. And in fact, most victims going to crucifixion were scourged while carrying the crossbar. Of course, we know Jesus wasn't. Huh, interesting. Uh, Do we know why that wouldn't have been the case? Well, for Jesus, uh, clearly, because if, if we can believe St. Luke, and, and I do, Pilate initially wanted him scourged and released. And released, so gotcha. he wanted it initially as a standalone punishment. Yes, yes, that makes sense, of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the crown of thorns and other abuse he would have experienced. Uh, yes, the royal mocking. So there is in Israel, this plant that today is actually named after the crown of thorns is called Zisiphus spina Christi. And I've seen it when I've been in Israel. Uh, grows, it's a bush, grows along the sides of the roads. Uh, I was able to uh, get a piece. And, uh, of course, I bled while I was trying to take it. It has thorns about half an inch long. Oh. Very dry, yeah. very sharp. And, you know, we often see these depictions with these two or three inch thorns. Mm, not necessarily, but nevertheless, sharp enough to pierce through a, uh, a scalp skin. And I operate on scalps every day. I did today on, on a couple scalps. And when you incise it, the, the scalp is under tension, so it just spreads apart. Yeah. And because it's under tension, there's nothing to naturally close the blood vessels, so they just bleed and bleed. They don't naturally uh, constrict enough to stop bleeding. And the crown of thorns would hardly likely have been just a circle type of crown, but more of a cap. And that's the, the language actually used in the Gospels, uh, in the Greek, more of a cap that would have touched over all of the, the scalp, uh, down to the nape of the neck, onto the forehead. And the Shred of Turin bears this out. Uh, because think like a soldier. Soldier's not going to try to make something pretty. He doesn't want to get his cut. So he's just going to probably slap it down on the scalp. And the thing to add insult to injury is that it says they used a reed. Now, a reed, I always thought, was this cattail-like, flimsy thing. No, a reed in the Middle East is actually this plant which makes things like bamboo. It's really hard, like a pull-cue huh. stick, a billiard yeah. stick. And it says they beat him on the head. Well, oh. it hit the head, the crown of thorns was in the way. So that would have driven it in <sighs> more each time, more bleeding, more pain. And then they gave him a robe, right? What did the robe do? Well, they had to take his own off. But what had happened before that? The scourging. The yeah. scourging had bled. The blood had dried, right. opened up the bleeding. So at least three times, they're opening and closing these bloody wounds on his back. Oh, um, Pilate, uh, again, uh, ends up uh, kind of reluctantly, apparently reluctantly, uh, having him crucified. Uh, And even there, he gave the crowd a choice uh, as to who he should release. So he clearly didn't want to go in this direction. 
what was Roman crucifixion like? Uh, what what did the cross look like? Uh, do is the is the traditional uh, picture that we have with this, you know, with a T, a, a T-shaped cross over his shoulders? Uh, is that what he was carrying, or was he carrying just a crossbar? You know what? The religious art and the crucifixes we've seen for years growing up was probably the biggest hindrance to trying to get through my mind what the actual evidence showed. Hmm. And going back to almost 500 B.C., the earliest presumed crucifixions, there is no evidence of ever um, a criminal carrying a two-part crossbar. Always in in Greek and Latin, it was just the crossbar itself, the upright already in place, wherever crucifixions played. Uh, How heavy was it? You know, you will read things like 50 to 100 pounds. What's the basis for that? When researching that, there is no basis. There's nothing that says how big it was. Now, in Jerusalem, there weren't a lot of large trees to make things out of. Uh, But we have one piece of evidence, if we can count it as evidence, and that is when St. Helena went to the Holy Land in the early 4th century to find the relics of the crucifixion, she found what was believed to be the cross of the good thief. And this crossbar now sits in the center of uh, Church of Santa Croce in Jerusalem in Rome. And it measures about six feet long. It's five by two and a half inches in cross-section. It's made of European black pine, just like all the tested uh, relics of the true cross have been found to be made of. And knowing the density of European black pine, it weighed about 15 pounds. Okay. So there's no reason to believe it was like a railroad tie that weighed 75 yeah, to 100 that, pounds. that's what I was asking. Okay, hold it there if you would, Tom. We'll come back and continue getting a sense of what Christ suffered. And, of course, the reason for this and the reason the Gospels are full of such uh, details is they want us to enter more deeply into the suffering of Jesus. I'll tell you, talk all about why on the other side of the break. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Thomas McGovern. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas McGovern. It's a doctor's journey through the passion, what Christ suffered. And it's important, I think, for us to really get a sense of the physical sufferings so that we when we get to the spiritual sufferings, we're not merely escaping the horror of the physical sufferings. The it's, it's very easy to imagine, well, he suffered spiritually as though somehow that's rather ethereal. Um, look, these, <laughs> things, these things are connected. The physical and the spiritual speak to one another here. What... Uh, what of him stumbling on the way? I've always wondered about this. Was he that weak? And if the crossbeam wasn't as heavy as the, the you know, the um, the railroad tier, uh, what does that tell us about how weak he was? I think it says he was quite weak. Yeah. Uh, but remember, it's still about six feet long, so yeah, okay. it's going to be easy to get off of balance, and yeah. if he's already in a state where it's hard to stand up, yeah. I can imagine that having a even a two-by-four, which would be lighter, would be hard to maneuver. I mean, he can probably barely see, because being upright, 
gravity is going to take effect of the, of the blood in him. So when we say a certain amount of blood loss leads to shock and stuff, we're talking usually about a, a patient in bed. But when they're standing up, it takes less amount yeah. uh, because of that gravity. That now, sense. I think if people listened closely, passion reading at Mass, they'll notice it doesn't say anything in Mark's Gospel about Jesus carrying the cross. What does it say? And they pressed into service Simon the Cyrenian. And that's what all the synoptics say. None of the synoptics say Jesus carried his cross. We're only going to hear it this Friday when we hear St. John's Passion. So their emphasis on that, I think, highlights how weak Jesus was, that they don't even have him carrying the cross. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the crucifixion itself then. Um, yeah. And by the way, there's this. There is a lesson here, isn't there? In in the the uh, Simon of Cyrene, um, yeah, uh, caring. I mean, Jesus, in a sense, didn't go it alone. <laughs> so no, we should if not. He needed help. I I, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's very reassuring too. Yeah. Um, yes. The crucifixion uh, takes place. Uh, midday to mid-afternoon, uh, Good Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33, is how it's date you date it. And um, what would that, what would he have experienced at that point? How did they, how did they crucify him, I guess? What's the manner in which he was crucified? Well, uh, you know, after walking the quarter mile or so, he would have, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. And this is one of the fallacies that I've seen, um, was it Eric Koskinini, he's, uh, I think, Finnish. He wrote a great article showing that there's no reason to believe that was something to reduce pain, because myrrh actually doesn't have any pain-relieving abilities. And all wine back then contained myrrh. A tiny amount is a preservative. So the fact that Mark mentions there was a significant amount of myrrh, if you ever taste wine with myrrh, it tastes like gasoline, like vinegar. It would just make his horrendous thirst even worse. Oh. So it's just another part of the torture. Oh, so they okay. offered that. Yeah, I mean, they're baiting him, really, with this. Yeah, so yeah. then they would lay him down on his back, again, taking his clothes off, uh, and so reopening those wounds when he hits the rough ground, and it would uh, most likely stretch him across the crossbeam that he's been carrying, and then so have one soldier at one end holding one hand and wrist and the other one pounding a, a large spike through the wrist bones without breaking them, uh, and without being particularly bloody or hitting any large nerve. It was just to fix him to the cross. Mm. And then they would pull him the other way and straighten his arms out as much as possible. In fact, the Roman name for that crossbar, patibulum, means to stretch out. Huh. So, And all ancient images of crucifixion before it was outlawed show the arms straight out. None show the arms above, none of these, you know, hanging limp arms. So, like that, and then he would be stood up and with soldiers, have that bar put on top of the upright post. Now, the nailing of the feet, the Shroud of Turin is unclear as to how the nails went. You can even look on various websites, and I've talked to Barry Schwartz, the official photographer of the 1978 Shroud of Turin project, research project, and he said you can't tell. It's consistent with what has been found archaeologically in all the ancient images, as well as one uh, bone found in a bone box uh, contemporary with Jesus in Jerusalem a mile north, showed a nail sideways outside to inside through a heel bone. Mm. And this fits with a number of the old images. But, in, but three years ago, another body or another skeleton was found in Italy, presumably of a crucifixion victim, unmarked grave. It was nailed from inside to outside, as if the knees were turned out and, and with the 
heels against the front of the cross. This also fits with an ancient graffito, singular for graffiti, of a crucifixion. So it is most likely that after he's up with uh, the arms attached, that his feet are then pulled on the side and then nailed sideways through the heel bone. And that does not break the bone, so it wouldn't contradict Scripture saying that none of his bones were broken. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, he would be in position, and bones have this lining, periosteum, which has a lot of tiny nerves in it. So you can feel things intensely. So with the, the feet resting on those bones, that had to be truly excruciating. Uh, the, the entry of the nail wounds in the wrist, were they the wrist or the palms? That, that's a good question, because um, I believe that the palms could have held it if the arms were horizontal, and there's, there's a number of research I won't go into uh, to support that. But, again, fitting with all the ancient images, as well as the one mark on the Shroud of Torn, almost certainly the wrist. And this is where Dr. Pierre Barbet did a helpful experiment on some recently amputated arms. He drove a spike through, uh, I think, a dozen wrists. And every time when just putting the spike uh, in the middle of the wrist somewhere, it always found its way, he says, like a funnel between four of the bones, never broke any, and firmly fixed um, uh, the arms to the cross. Mm. So I, I suspect that was what was yeah. done. Yeah. Um. Let's talk about on the cross and his death. Uh, people yes. always wondered, medically speaking, what did he die from? And uh, are there lots of different theories on this? There's at least 10 different theories, and that was one of the impetuses for writing the book, is there was an article written by some physician saying, look, you doctors writing about the crucifixion, you're all over the place, and you're not citing any good evidence for any of these things you're saying. So one of the popular ones that a mentor of mine when I was at medical school at Mayo Clinic wrote about was the, the asphyxiation, the, the suffocation theory. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is it was based on another form of torture in which wrists are tied together and the whole body is suspended by the wrists. The arms are straight up. There's no weight on the legs. And that does lead to problems with breathing. However, in other studies done, usually with medical students, straps to a cross instead of nailed, um, there is no difficulty with breathing. And, um, in fact, the suffocation theory suggests that uh, a victim would have to push themselves up and straighten the knees and then bend them so that their elbows could alternately come in and go out and bring the ribs in and out to push air out of the lungs. Well, when uh, volunteers have tried to do this on the cross, they can't even straighten themselves once. The position is not advantageous to even make that motion. Yeah. So that alone would disprove it. Uh, another thing that disproves it is that the Gospels say Jesus cried out in a loud voice at the moment of death. When you are suffocating to death, yeah. you can't talk, Very let alone good. cry out in a loud voice. Right, right. So, uh, and there, there are other lines of evidence to, to support why that wasn't the case. Now, what I, I completely agree with, with my mentor and others who have written, shock was the main thing. And as the body is undergoing more pain, losing more fluid, even the heart muscle itself can't get enough blood flow and oxygen to function normally. Right. And at a certain point, it goes into an abnormal rhythm. And the most likely abnormal rhythm here, my cardiologist friends have told me, is ventricular tachycardia, when the bottom thick part of the heart starts driving the bus at about 200 beats a minute. And when you get into that, you don't have long to live, and you feel differently. You might feel more lightheaded, but you know something's going on. So naturally, 
this would have given Jesus a notice that, hey, my time is up, yeah. and, and uh, so that he can say his final two words and not have to posit something supernatural for him to know when the moment of death was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the suffering, you write that suffering reveals the man, and that's one of the reasons to look at this. Um, in his suffering, Jesus uh, prays, Father, forgive them, uh, they don't know what they're doing. And uh, I, you know, I, I experienced amputation back in 2003, yeah. and I, I can tell you uh, there was n- nothing, nothing like that was uh, in the forefront of my mind. I, I, all I could do, you know, I mean, I was pain. Yes. I, get me out of this pain was the only thing I could think of. Um, would he have experienced the same a pain of that sort? I know it's a different type than shock, but I'm just curious, how remarkable is it that he had the mental where- and spiritual wherewithal to say something like that? Well, I, 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 think it's, I think it's superhuman. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. requires grace to be able to do that, because no one on a natural level would ever think of doing that. Right. Yeah, that's the way it strikes me, too. I, I, just, I find that just amazing. And yet he calls us to imitate him, to follow him, and, um, you know, this is uh, re- relating our sufferings to Jesus and then to somehow uh, find those meaningful uh, in our relationship with others. So what is legitimate? When we talk about suffering redemptively, what's yes. the right way to approach that so that we're not in any way taking away from the centrality of Christ's suffering? You know, it's the way I start every day that I was taught to do it. My God will accept and bear with submission today whatever suffering I experience for love of you, for the conversion of sinners and reparation for sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I mean, that's reframing our day. Everything I'm doing today. So to me, that's the right way to do it. I've already laid it on the table. Lord, if I forget it, this is what I want my suffering to go for. And it's like that, you know, those three favorite words that, lo- that wives love to tell their husbands when they're complaining. Offer it up. Yeah. <laughs> Offer it up is really effective. Yeah. I mean, I, so if you're suffering, just say, I offer it up, Lord, do whatever you want with it. We don't have to have any flowery thoughts. We just have to give it to him. Yes. Um, the favorite line I've learned in the pandemic, I, I read it was, Paul Claudel wrote this, you know, Christ did not come into the world to re- remove suffering. He didn't even come into the world to explain suffering. He came into the world to suffer with us. Yes, that's good. So if suffering is good enough for God, it's good enough for me, and the only way it makes sense is if I do it with Him. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, and I think we, we lose, uh, we don't really think about this often enough, uh, the, the idea that the, the story leads us to the death of Messiah. There's no way of escaping yes. the suffering that he went through. There's no, no way of looking to get a, a crown without this cross. And uh, right. all of us will die in this world. And Jesus gives us, uh, again, a, a way of making something meaningful of our death. Um, we can do good by our and, suffering. And I, I think when we have died, we will have wished we had done more with our suffering while we could. I'm sure that's true. 
Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I, I you know, go back to my own experience here. I'd hoped that I would consider myself very expert at offering up suffering. <laughs> and I found I was not very good at it at all. <laughs> uh, I can relate. Well, thank you so much, Tom. We'll talk again. Love what you're doing. Thank you, Al. God bless you. Dr. Thomas McGovern, great book, What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. I'm Al Cresta.